Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And this episode is going to be a little bit unusual because I've had a request. Now, I have to say I'm slightly embarrassed about this because if you know me, you'll know I'm actually quite shy. I know that sounds a bit strange because obviously I'm the voice of the podcast and I'm also a progressive property trainer. And so I'm regularly on stage in front of people, but I'm actually a bit shy. And so normally I wouldn't really want to talk too much about myself, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Now, I know that when I first took over the podcast, there was an episode where I was interviewed by Rob Moore, but I've had a request and I've had it on more than one occasion, so I thought I probably ought to do something about it. And the request is, Peter, it's great that you get these great guests on and that you interview them, but actually we'd like to hear more about you. So I thought about this and I thought, well, I could interview myself, but that could sound a bit weird. So it's probably easier if I just do a monologue and I tell you all about myself. But I hasten to add, I'm only doing this because a few of you have asked me to do this. This isn't about my ego or anything, so please, I feel a little bit bit awkward. But I will do it. I will do it. I'll tell you all about myself. So my name is Peter Jones. And just to clear up The first question, which I often get, am I from a property family or do I have a property background in that sense? No, I don't. I come from a very ordinary family. My dad was actually a civil servant in the Ministry of Transport. My mum is what we could call a homemaker, I suppose, although she in later life went and got a part-time job with a large tobacco company who were based in the town where I grew up and she was in the customer complaints department amazing stories that she had of people dropping lit cigarettes down their fronts and then claiming compensation, as one does. But anyway, that's my mum. And I had a very normal upbringing. I went to the local school. I did the things that kids usually do. I played football, all that kind of stuff. And to all intents and purposes, everything was completely normal. Got to the age of about 17 and suddenly at school, everybody started talking about what they were going to be doing as a career. And it seemed important to the teachers at school that we came up with some kind of decision as to what we're going to do. To be honest, I found that really, really tough. And I have a lot of sympathy for teenagers when their parents like push them because I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. And 17 is an incredibly young age to be deciding what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life, isn't it? Particularly when you've got absolutely no clue what you can do and what's available and what jobs there are and what careers you can go into. And I suppose even more so in this day and age where things are changing so much that new careers and new activities are are coming to light, which we wouldn't even have thought of sort of a year ago because of the increases in technology and stuff. Who would have thought about artificial intelligence, all this kind of stuff, which we can probably make careers in nowadays. But anyway, back then, 17, had to think of something to do, had no clue what to do. And it was at that point that my dad suggested that I do something in property and he suggested that I go to university to study property. Now it's interesting looking back because my dad as I say was a civil servant but he was obviously a frustrated entrepreneur. He did a load of stuff outside of work like he collected antiques and he traded antiques in his spare time which he was really really good at but he had this hankering to be in property 
But for my dad, it never really happened. So I'm guessing it was probably a kind of a vicarious thing when he pushed me towards property. He could have been good at property because one thing I realise now looking back is that because of my dad's job, we had to move quite regularly. And every time we moved, we bought a new house. I mean, we sold the old house. He didn't collect a portfolio, but we moved from one house to the next house. And we always used to move into a bigger house. And he always used to say to me, son, stretch yourself, always stretch yourself. And that's exactly what he did. He always bought a house which was slightly more than he could afford, in truth. But it must have worked because when I was about eight, we moved into a house in probably what's almost the most expensive street in Nottingham. I think it's the second most expensive street in Nottingham, which looking back, given where he was on the sort of career ladder in the civil service, was quite an amazing thing. All because he pushed himself and he stretched himself and he dreamt big. Anyway, he couldn't be a property entrepreneur, so maybe I was the next best thing. So I went off to university and I actually did a bespoke course all about property. And it was okay. The first year I did really well. I think there's about 120 of us in my year and I came in the top 10 and that was cool. But after that, things just went from bad to worse. I stopped doing the things I should have done and I started doing things I shouldn't have done and I went into a downward spiral and I'm embarrassed about this, but I'll confess it, I actually didn't do very well at university. I did get a degree, but I got such a low degree that sometimes when I say, well, I actually got people who've never even heard of it, and I think that they just gave me the scrap of paper, really, just as out of sympathy more than anything. It was meant to be what they call an honours degree, but I did so badly they wouldn't give me the honours bit, so I call it a dishonourable degree. And with that, I was dispatched out into the big wide world to try and find a job, which in the early 80s, there was a bit of a recession. It was a bit of a struggle. But after a few months, I found a job working with a firm of estate agents in Wimbledon. And my role was to be an assistant to the then senior partner, who was a man in his mid-70s. And my job was to go around and learn from him while assisting him doing mortgage valuations, structural surveys and any commercial stuff that came through the door, such as rent reviews on shops and offices and bits and pieces like that. And there we were, off we went. And we must have looked a very strange pair turning up on people's doorsteps, because in those days, at the age of 21, hard to imagine now, but do you remember mullet haircuts? Well, I had a mullet and my hair was <laughs> well over the collar length. I was a very hairy youth. Always smoking, used to chain smoke in those days. Haven't smoked now for, what, 40 years, 30 years, but there we are, chain smoking. And my senior partner who I was assisting was a very tall, distinguished gentleman, as I say, in his mid-70s, thinning grey hair, glasses. But what made him particularly striking was the fact that he had a, a black eye patch because he'd lost an eye in a, a car accident. And so we'd ring on people's doorbells and, surprisingly, People would let us in to go and do surveys and stuff on their house. We must have looked a bit frightening, though. And my job was to do all the stuff he couldn't do. So I'd climb into the roof up the ladder and have a look around and sort of shout back to him what I could see. But it was literally the blind leading the blind, wasn't it? Because I honestly didn't know what I was doing because I'd only just come out of uni and I hadn't done particularly well. And actually, the university course wasn't that practical anyway. It was more about the theory of valuation rather than how to spot rot in a roof. But somehow or other, we muddled through. And that was the beginning of my career in property. And I worked my way through a number of jobs in the private sector and in the public sector. At one stage, I was a dreaded taxman. So that was quite fun. I used to have a special pass saying that I was with 
HMRC, or the Inland Revenue as it was in those days, which I used to flash at people and it'd go white when they saw that, and work my way up the career ladder until at the age of 35, I found myself in the West End of London, working for a very prestigious firm in the West End of London, and I was a partner. How I got there, I've got no idea. It was quite a meteoric rise for this guy who had the mullet and who was chain-smoking, who knew nothing, but somehow it happened. And by many people's reckoning, it would have been a very good job. My main role was, by that stage, commercial property. So I was going around the UK valuing office buildings, warehouses, industrial units, the odd shopping centre, mainly for institutions like pension funds and insurance companies, but also some of the larger property companies. And it was an amazing job, really, looking back on it. I was doing okay. Good salary, nice car, pension, had the title, because I wasn't just a partner. I was also the partner in charge of the West End office. This particular firm had two offices, one in the West End, one in the City of London, and I was in charge of the West End office. Amazing stuff. But... Was I happy? No, I wasn't happy. Why wasn't I happy? Well, for two reasons, really. Firstly, there was a lot of travelling. There was a lot of being away from the family. At that stage, I was married with three children. I'm still married, by the way, to the same lady, and we've now got four children, but at that time it was three children. And I was away from home a lot, and that was hard. And the work became quite routine and mundane, if I'm going to be honest. But worse than that, it was just the corporate mindset and the office politics. And I don't know whether you can relate to this, but it seemed like everybody only felt they could get ahead if they put somebody else down. And that's not really me. And I'm a bit sensitive and I just found the office politics just too much to handle. So it was with a heavy heart every day that I used to get up, jump on the train, stand. It was usually standing room only by the time the train got to where I lived at that time and head up into the west end of London, up to Oxford Circus, where a lot of the big surveying firms are located. And I did that for several years, and I did not enjoy it at all. But there was nothing I could do about it, because I knew that it would be totally irresponsible to walk out and to leave the job, because I had the family to support. And I thought, I just can't do that. Part of me really wanted to go and do something of my own. I really wanted to start my own business. I really wanted to do what I wanted to do. And now I know about these things, having read Dr. John D. Martini's book, The, the Values Factor, for example, I know that uh, freedom is a really big thing to me, which I didn't appreciate just how big it was. And so there's a big conflict in me all the time going off to this job where it wasn't just nine to five. It was really, you were expected to be there sort of eight to eight. And I'm sure that that's probably still the case nowadays. So that was that. And I thought that was it. Until on this particular Thursday in November 1995, I was asked to go and see Jeffrey, my senior partner, who was waiting for me apparently in the conference room. Now, that was a bit odd because it's a big open plan office and Jeffrey, the senior partner, used to sit in one corner and I was kind of like in the middle. And if we ever needed to talk, we'd just go and talk to each other. So why did I need to go and see him in the conference room? But I didn't really think about it. I headed off, went to the conference room, knock on the door, come in, he says... In I go, and there's Jeffrey sat behind this big mahogany table waiting for me. And as I walked towards the table, he kind of ushered me over and beckoned me to sit down, but I could see he wasn't really looking me in the eye. And I thought, a bit strange. What's up, Jeffrey? Didn't really say anything, but as I sat down, I noticed he had this white envelope in front of him. 
and it had my name on it. And I thought, that's a bit weird. What's going on? And after a bit, I said, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, what's the matter? And he said, Peter, I don't really know how to tell you this, but unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go. And with that, he slid the envelope across the table towards me. And I realised with horror that this was my redundancy pay. There was a cheque in it. And that was it. Now, if you had told me a year ago that I was going to be made redundant, then I probably would have been really excited about it because I would have thought, wow, I can go and do what I want to do. But at that moment, the reality of what he was saying struck home and I suddenly realised that I had nothing. Because I don't know whether you can relate to this, but because I had a wife and a family, we just did not save a penny, to be honest. All the money just went. I don't know on what, on mortgages, on stuff for the kids. It just went. So I didn't have savings to fall back on. And suddenly the good salary, the car, the pension, the title for what it's worth, they just disappeared in front of my very eyes. The only thing I had was the redundancy payment. Now, maybe I was a little bit naive because in the 1990s there was yet another recession. Well, the economy is cyclical and there's always going to be the occasional recession. And it just so happened this was the 1990s recession and the commercial property market had taken absolute hammering. And so all the stuff I was good at actually wasn't needed at that time. The stuff which I used to go out and do just wasn't needed. And so I can see that not only was my skill set made redundant, but I was made redundant as well because of that. So it's logical, but it was still a shock. And so I had to go home and tell my wife that I'd been made redundant. And we didn't have anything apart from the redundancy check. Now, she is brilliant and she's very supportive and she looked at me and she said darling it's gonna be okay but I knew that she was worried and that made me worried because I know that she never really worries about anything but I could see she was worried and I realized at that point that nobody was gonna come and save us it was all gonna be down to me something had to happen and it was me who was gonna have to make it happen the government weren't gonna save us rich relatives weren't going to save us even you know I didn't have any rich relatives but even if I did it was all down to me wasn't it and so I the clock was ticking and, and we worked out we looked at the redundancy check and we worked out that we probably had six to nine months before everything was going to go pear-shaped so I was working to six to nine months to get everything to happen so the very first thing I did was I found what we would now call a JV partner I didn't know about JVs in those days. It just seemed like a common sense thing to do. I found somebody who had a bit of money. I borrowed it off them. I bought a house and that house was what we would call a refurb and flip. I spent nine months refurbishing a small terraced house in a town close to where I lived. The reality is that refurb should only have taken four months. And because it took far too long and because I insisted on trying to do a lot of the work myself, even though I cannot do DIY, how crazy is that? But I just felt it would be good. It felt like it was the mature thing to do. It felt like the grown up thing to do. And I thought it would be quite therapeutic to actually go out and do the work. Crazy idea. Should have just got people in to do the work for me. And whenever I did anything to this particular house, I had to get an expert to then come back and undo what I'd done and redo it all and do it properly. So it cost far more than it should have and it took far longer than it should have. But I still made a small profit at the end, which was good. But I realised that doing this probably wasn't in my flow and it probably wasn't the way that I was going to turn things around. So I, during this time, I'd been thinking about what we'd now call the BRR model, the buy, refurbish and refinance model. Now, don't forget, back when I started... 
there wasn't any property education. There was no progressive property. In fact, Robin Mark didn't start until probably, ooh, let's think, be at least 10 years after this. This is like a good 10 to 12 years before Robin Mark started. And there was no property education that I knew of. Nobody who I could call on to be a mentor, nobody whose brains I could pick to find out how to do this stuff. And actually, that's why a little bit later, in year 2000, I ended up writing what I think is the very first book about buy to let. And that came out in the year 2000. Again, you know, a good five to seven years before Rob and Mark published their first book, because I realised that there was a big need for people to have information. But anyway, at that time, I just had this inkling that the BRR model could work, that I could buy a property, that I could buy it a little bit cheap, I could add some value through a refurb, and then I could refinance it and get my money back out and then do it all again. And it took me literally four years to work out how to do this because there was nobody to ask. And it was right at the very beginning of buy to let. And this was sort of uncharted territory. But I worked out how to do it. Four years. Now, after that four years and I'd worked out how to do it, I was then off and running and I then compiled a portfolio very, very quickly. But as I so often say when I'm doing trainings, that nowadays we don't appreciate how lucky we are in a sense, because that four years I can probably teach you in four days. And in fact, when I do masterclass with Anne and Rebecca and Dixie and whoever the team is on a particular masterclass weekend, we spend four days showing you pretty much everything which it took me four years to sort out for myself. And I think that's amazing that we can now do that. So I worked out how to do it. And the thing which I suppose is really thrilling looking back is that I managed to start without using any of my own money. Now, I'm saying that in all seriousness. Sometimes when I say that, people look at me a little bit awry and they sort of raise an eyebrow and they think, if they're polite, they'll be thinking, does he really mean that? If they're rude, then they'll actually challenge it and they may call it something else. I've just recently had a bit of a thing with uh, a couple of trolls on my YouTube channel who've been sort of trying to call me out on this, but it's absolutely true. I didn't have any money. As I said, I didn't have any savings because we'd spent everything when I had been employed. All we had was the redundancy check, which was earmarked towards keeping food on the table for the family. So in the lack of money, I had to go and use other people's money and I was able to do that. The very first thing which I did was I managed to get a little bit of employment as a consultant on a very part-time basis, a couple of days a week at most, but it was enough to be able to prove an income to the bank, which meant that the bank allowed me to remortgage my own home and I was able to take money out of my own home and use that money as the seed capital for my portfolio. And now I realise that because I'm still buying property, by the way, and we'll come on to what I'm doing now a little bit later, but because I'm still buying property, I'm still effectively spending that money, which I took out 20 years ago when I remortgaged my home. So although I hear people say that you will always run out of money, I think from time to time you obviously do. From time to time, one does, and I have run out of money. But in the overall scheme of things, if you just keep going, and if the market keeps moving you'll find that you're able to use that money over and over and over and over, which is the idea anyway, isn't it? So all of my property portfolio stems from that one refinancing of my own home at that time to get that money out, which is quite an interesting idea. Now, it's around about that sort of time that I found this amazing HMO. Now, I didn't know it was called a HMO. Um, 
I suppose because in those days I used to watch Rising Damp, if you remember that programme with Rigsby, I would have called it Bedsits. But it was, it was a HMO and it was a, there's a massive Victorian property which had once been owned by royalty, which had been turned into, I think it was 16 apartments and it was for sale. And I just fell in love with this property and I could see that if I could buy these 16 apartments and if I could get them at the right price with the right return, using the money which I'd drawn out from my own home, that I'd be able to set myself up with an income for life. And it's one of the big dangers, isn't it? We teach against this at Masterclass and on, and on many of the other trainings. But I did get emotionally involved. I literally fell in love with that property. There's just something about it and the fact that it had this amazing history. And I got sucked in. It turned out that the vendor actually wasn't a very easy person to deal with. I'm not going to name names in case he listens to this. He's a very nice guy, but he wasn't easy to deal with. And we pussyfooted around with this deal for about two years. I thought the deal was done and then things changed and then we did the deal again and I thought it was done and then things changed again. I should have walked away very early on in the process, but I just got myself to, into the situation where I knew I had to have this property. And I ended up unbelievably spending about £20,000 on abortive legal fees, bearing in mind this is 20 years ago. That's probably the equivalent of thirty or £40,000 in legal fees today. And I was remember starting on a shoestring with hardly any money, hardly able to afford that kind of money. But eventually I realised that I was just going to keep chucking good money after bad if I didn't walk away and so it was with a very very heavy heart that I walked away from this deal now that deal was actually located in the southeast of England which is where I was living at that time but for personal reasons family reasons I ended up moving close to Nottingham back in 1998 and it was at that point when I discovered the gold mine which is the, the northeast that is my gold mine area now, sometimes at the trainings, people ask me, well, why did you invest in the Northeast instead of investing in Nottingham? And that's a great question. The answer is that because I'd only just moved outside of Nottingham, I didn't know Nottingham. So I didn't know Nottingham any better than I knew Newcastle. And it just so happened that, how can I explain it? It was almost like a complete fluke. I just happened to come across an advert which was being run by what we'd call a deal packager or a property sourcer who was offering deals in the northeast with amazing returns on the properties. And I was a little bit sceptical, but I thought, well, I'm going to go and have a look because this is amazing. I realised that I had to do something in a hurry in order to sort of try and get things back on track, having wasted two years and £20,000 on this abortive HMO deal. So there was a certain amount of desperation, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. So I jumped onto the train, I went up to Newcastle, I met this particular property deal packager stroke saucer who took me around and I could see that the figures stacked I could see although I was slightly skeptical it was actually as they were describing it and I could see that if I did what they were suggesting that it was my BRR model which I knew could work and I'd found the way to actually bring all of that together and I could make this work so without further ado I jumped straight in and I started buying as many properties as I could using my limited funds doing a refurb, refinancing and recycling all or most of my money back out of each deal and trying to fill my boots. And I think in the first year, I bought eight properties and I was feeling pretty good with myself. But then, big problem. Now, just to set the context, I'd set myself the goal of 
producing a portfolio of at least 50 properties and I got to eight in my first year. A little bit frustrated maybe that I'd only got to eight, but at the same time really pleased because I'd got to eight, if that makes sense. And then suddenly, without warning, my main bank at that time, the bank who had actually lent me all of that money, said to me, Peter, we're going to put you on hold, we're going to make you have a sabbatical now because what we want to see is that you're a competent investor and landlord and so we're not going to lend you any more money for a year. If you're still trading and if we're happy with what you're doing in a year's time, then we'll consider lending you more money in a year's time. And they wouldn't be budged on that. That was their final word. The thing which alarmed me about that was because I'd come from a situation where I hadn't got any money of my own, the only money I had was the equity I'd drawn out of my own home. And because I didn't really have experience in residential property, I was convinced in my own mind that I wasn't going to find another lender who would lend me the money. Let me just stop there and let's just sort of cover some of that because that's actually so important on our property journey. Mindset. If you come to Masterclass, you'll hear me saying on the very first morning at nine o'clock that we can teach you the technical stuff. That's not hard. We can teach you the techniques and the strategies and how to do property. But the bit which is actually hard is controlling the six inches between your brains. If you could see me, you can see I'm tapping my head now. The six inches between your ears. That's the hard bit, isn't it? Because it's about mindset. We can teach you how to do it, but we can't make you do it. And you're only going to do it if A, you really want to, B, you kind of half believe that you can do it, and C, you have the need to do it. And it's all about what happens up there. And I was suffering from mindset problems. Second related point, sometimes people ask me, well, wasn't it a great advantage for you because you were a chartered surveyor? Well, yes and no, but mainly no. And when I say that, people are often surprised. But here's the reality. When I left the corporate world, my speciality was commercial property. I hadn't done houses for a good more than half a dozen years, eight years. So I hadn't looked at a house for eight years. I wasn't particularly interested in houses, particularly in terms of their construction. Not my thing at all. I'm not a detailsy person, so I'm probably the last person who should be out doing surveys. I hate to think about the carnage I probably caused by actually doing surveys. You show me a brick and I'll say, what's that for? It was probably not a good idea. But the most damaging thing, I think, was having been a partner in a West End firm meant that I'd picked up all of the corporate mindset stuff. I remember having conversations with my co-partners and we were discussing over a, a, a break. I remember we were having a break. I forget why it was. Perhaps it was a bonding session out in a London hotel, you know, like they used to have in those days. Maybe they still do. And we were talking and my co-partners were basically saying that you had to make the choice. You couldn't be an investor. You either had to be the client or you had to be the surveyor. And it was totally inappropriate for surveyors to invest in property. And everybody just accepted that. They all shrugged, said, yeah, absolutely agree. You can't do both. Looking back now, what a mindset. What a mindset to say you can't invest in property because you've got to service your clients. And I'm sure that behind it, there was probably good reasons, but actually it had gone too far. And if anybody had really thought about it, they thought, well, actually, it doesn't make any sense at all. You can do both and you can keep your integrity and there doesn't have to be a conflict of interest particularly if your clients are doing commercial property, which is what my company specialised in, as opposed to doing residential property. So at that point, as I say, 
although although these things may have felt like positives looking in from the outside, they actually weren't positives. I had a really poor mindset. I wasn't that great at residential property. And I wasn't convinced that I was going to be able to find another lender who was going to be able to help me on my journey. So for the first few months, I've got to be honest, I kind of like went round in a fog and I sulked a bit and I thought, well, I'm never going to hit my goal. Then I thought to myself, well, I sort of slapped myself, pulled myself together, had a bit of a word with myself and I said, right, go and find another lender. You would think that would be fairly straightforward, but it wasn't for all the reasons that I'm Maybe maybe I created my own future, maybe my own mindset, because I was negative, I gave off negative vibes. I don't know. But it turned out I was right. It was very hard to get another lender involved. Eventually, when we got to about month 10 of my enforced sabbatical, I did find another lender. And that lender agreed to lend me some money. But the terms weren't great. I wanted interest only. They'd only do it on capital repayment. The interest rate they were charging was significantly higher than the first lender. But it was money and it allowed me to start lining up my next deals. And so I went with them, lined up my next deals. And then lo and behold, bing, the clock struck 12. It was the end of the year. My first lender, who I did get on with and who had been good to me and who I did trust and who understood exactly what I was trying to do, then got back in touch with me and said, well, okay, you're still here. You're still trading. We're happy to start lending to you again. And so... Having done deals with the second lender, I then had to then refinance and switch all my deals across to my first lender so I could get the better terms. That took time. That cost money. But, you know, it allowed me to get going again. And I started to build up some really good momentum. And I started buying and buying and buying. I'm in full-time property investor by this time. Now, one thing which I'm sometimes asked is how easy was it for me to develop a gold mine area so far from home? Because if you know your geography... Nottingham's about 150 miles away from Newcastle. And the answer is, it wasn't hard. And I'm often surprised how many people ask me the question as if it is hard. I mean, it's true, you've got to go there. And okay, it took me two hours on the train, or it took me three and a half hours to drive. And if I had to go there, then I had to put a line through the diary and go there for a day. But it's very doable. And actually, in this day and age, because there are so many great websites and apps that we can now use, which I've run through with you at Masterclass, by the way, you can save so much time in developing a gold mine area away from home should you need to. By the way, a lot of people don't actually need to. It all depends on what strategy you want to do. Most strategies will work in most places. There's just one or two strategies which probably won't work locally, depending upon where you are. So... It wasn't a big deal. And so if you're just thinking about it, I'd say just crack on, just do it. Stop looking for the negatives and stop looking for the obstacles, just go and do it. You've probably heard the expression that you'll not achieve as much in a year as you hope or anticipate, but you'll achieve more in five years than you ever thought possible. Words to that effect. They are butchering the quote. I think it's a Tony Robbins quote. But it's so true because when I got to eight and I was put on sabbatical by the bank I thought that was it I was never going to achieve my goals but the strange thing is that just a few years later once they turned on the tap again and once I went out and started buying again eventually after about three or four years I found myself not just buying properties but buying portfolios and I ended up flipping portfolios not all of them I actually kept some of them I bought three portfolios which I kept But I also bought three portfolios, which I flipped on, which is an amazing thought, because when the bank first turned the monies off, I thought that was it. So it just goes to show one of the things which I will always say to anybody is that your success is often just going to be down to your 
durability. If you can keep going, no matter what happens to you, and if you keep going long enough, then chances are you're going to be successful. If you're still doing property in 10 years, you're going to be successful. Because if you've gone 10 years and you're not successful, then you're probably just doing it completely wrong. But over that 10 years, you'll realise you're doing it wrong and tweak it. So it's a matter often of just keeping going. And because I kept going, I then found myself at a level which I would never, ever have anticipated. So I was buying portfolios. Remember, one of the portfolios I bought, I think, was 17 properties. There was another one with 12 properties, another one with seven properties which I kept and then there was one with 12 properties which I then flipped on. Somebody was asking me about this the other weekend. The reason why that worked is because I was able to buy the portfolio with a bulk discount effectively and then I sold the properties on individually at a very nice profit. So there was all sorts of things which I would never have dreamt of being able to do when I first started. One of the strange things which happened is that the bank my first bank, my main lender, then got in touch with me again. Now, this time, it was a little bit curious because they summonsed me to their head office and they said, bring a copy of your business plan with you. And I thought, oh, my word, what's this all about? They didn't say what they wanted to talk about other than the, this business plan. So very unusually for me, I put on a suit and a tie, which I hated, and I went down. I mean, it's not really me at all, if you know me. I went down to their offices and I sat there and two very important people came into the conference room, sat in front of me and they said, hello, Mr. Jones, we'd be very grateful if you could explain to us your business plan and your strategy. So I had to give them an off-the-cuff presentation for about 10 minutes. Then they looked at each other. I kid you not, this is true. They looked at each other, they laughed, they smiled, and one said to the other one, do you want to tell him what we really want to talk about? And the other one laughed and said, yeah, actually, very good. We love what you're doing. We can see exactly what you're doing. So no problem with that. We want to lend you a lot more money. And I just sat there. My, my jaw hit the table. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And they said, it's honestly true. We, we like what you're doing. We think you're a great risk. You're very professional. We want to lend you five million quid. Could you spend five million quid? The reality is I couldn't really. The properties which I were buying were probably all around about forty, fifty thousand pounds each at the time. It would have been quite hard to have spent five million quid, but it was nice to have access to almost unlimited funds. By the way, if you're getting excited about this and thinking, well, I'll email Peter to see if you want to do a JV. Of course, we've had the credit crunch since then. Next bit of my story, and that that facility and that offer was withdrawn. But I just thought, how ironic that we'd gone from a situation where just. A, a few years earlier, they said they wouldn't lend me a penny to then having sort of almost tricked me to come down to see them in their head office so they could offer me all this money. As it was, I didn't get to spend all of that money, but it was very nice to know that it was there and it gave me a great confidence boost and it obviously allowed me to keep building the business. So everything was fine. Everything was going really, really well until the dark clouds started gathering just before the credit crunch. And I remember there was lots of talk on the forums and there's lots of articles being written about the subprime uh, difficulties in the, in the States and how that crisis was going to come over the Atlantic and it was going to affect Europe and particularly the UK. And I must admit, I rather stuck my head in the sand. I, I listened to it, but I wasn't quite sure how it was going to affect me in practice. And mostly... I've realised in life that a lot of the time, a lot of these things get very exaggerated. It's just, I suppose, one of those things that in this particular instance, it wasn't exaggerated because the effect obviously was quite catastrophic for a lot of people. 
But I was merrily doing my thing. I was just concentrating on building my buy-to-let portfolio. Then, of course, we get to 2008. What happens? Credit's turned off. The banks basically stop lending. My strategy, which I've always used, suddenly doesn't work. And I have to admit that, again, I went into a bit of a sulk and a bit of a fug for a few months. And I thought, oh, my word, you know, it's all over. It's all over. But had a word with myself, gave myself a slap and thought, no, must do something. And it was at that point that I realised that there was a great opportunity to do things creatively, what I call at Masterclass the crazy stuff. Things like lease options and delayed completions and assisted sales, going direct to vendor, using leaflets and newspaper ads to generate deals. And that's what I started doing. And I did that for a a good couple of years. And that was a, a really happy time of my life because all that stuff was such fun. Eventually, of course, the market started to come back, lending started to come back, and I was able to carry on doing what I was doing. But it was a little bit later after that, as we were coming out of the credit crunch, that I became aware of Robin Mark. And I was sitting at my desk one night, playing with my spreadsheets, when my email pinged. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but that ping, that was an email from Progressive. I'm sure we've all had dozens and dozens of emails from Progressive. Hundreds of emails from Progressive, if not thousands of emails from Progressive. And this particular email was inviting me to go to the Super Conference in 2013. Super Conference was a bit like a forerunner of what we'd now call a multiple streams of property income event. Very big event, 900 people at Conference Centre in Wembley, next to Wembley Stadium. And I went for the full three days and I was absolutely blown away with what I heard fantastic event. Ironically, I spent the whole weekend sat on the very back row, 900 people, and I sat on the very back row in the far corner, never ever once dreaming that in a few years time, not many years, two years later, I'd actually be a trainer for Progressive, stood at the front. There we go. Who would have thought it? A shy person like me, but shows what's possible when you put your mind to it. And who knows when life's going to take you. But I was completely blown away by what they were talking about. So Next thing that happened after I went home, get another email inviting me to a JV day. JV day, fantastic. Sat there with Rob Moore hearing all about JVs, realising there's so much more to property than just getting buy-to-let mortgages. And it was at that point that Rob offered membership of the VIP. VIP is a 12-month mentoring at Progressive. And I jumped at it. I'd never spent, I've got to be honest, up until that time, I'd probably never spent more than a few hundred quid on my property education, but I realised that what Rob was offering, I had to do. And although I hadn't checked in with her at home, I knew I just had to do this. And so the very first thing I did on going down to Progressive Towers, my very first introduction to Peterborough was to join VIP. And sometimes people ask me, look, if you're a chartered surveyor, if you already had, you know, several dozen properties, which I did at the time, and if you're already you know, in in many respects, a successful property investor, why would you want to join VIP? Well, it all goes back to this whole thing around mindset, which I was talking about. One of the things which I realised in the credit crunch was that if I'd had a stronger mindset, if I'd had a group of my peers who I could talk to, if I'd had access to new information and new strategies and new techniques, it would have made dealing with all of that so much easier. And so I realised it's kind of like an insurance policy, really, But it was also fundamentally crucial to dealing with my mindset and getting my mindset back on track. 
And so for the last few years, I've been very happy as a member of the progressive community. I went from being on the VIP to being a VIP mentor. Uh, I no longer do that because I'm just so busy. But in that time, I've done some really great stuff, I think. I mean, am I allowed to say that? Well, it's been, I've, I've enjoyed it anyway. One of the things which I did was I realised that although I'd done flips in the past, I'd kind of forgotten about flips. And joining VIP encouraged me to go out and do more flips. In fact, when I first signed up for the VIP, the very first thing I did was I went out and I did a flip. I bought a property which was quite run down. I did nothing to it at all, by the way. I just put it straight back into the auction and I sold it. And I sold it for considerably more than I'd actually paid for it, even though I bought it through an estate agent. By the way, bit of a tangent. Some people say to me, can you really get good deals through estate agents? Well, yes, of course you can. It's a numbers game. If you go to enough estate agents and look at enough deals, and if you start talking to the agents about what the motivation of the vendor is, you're going to find good deals. That's exactly what I did in this instance. And I was able to sell that property at a very good profit. And that paid for all of my property education on an ongoing basis. So that was pretty cool. But I did more flips. And over the years, I've been trying to sort of branch out into new strategies. So I've gone from not just owning buy-to-lets now, but now I've got HMOs, which is really exciting. I probably wouldn't have thought of doing HMOs if I hadn't been part of a great community and listening to other people, seeing them doing HMOs. I have just bought a piece of land. Well, I say just, I actually bought it uh, a while back and I'm just waiting for planning to come through. But I'm going to build four houses on a piece of land. Now, probably would never have thought about doing that. But being in a great community, my mindset is getting stretched. I've just put my first commercial conversion under offer, which is really exciting. So hopefully in a couple of months' time, I'll own that property and I'll be converting what's essentially, essentially an office building with storage into apartments. Really excited about that. And more recently, I've just bought four flats. Now, there's a bit of a story there because I already own one flat there's two blocks which comprise 14 flats in all one freehold the two blocks are in one freehold and all of the flats are owned by buy to let investors the difficulty has been that as owners we just have not been able to agree on what happens to the blocks and so in desperation having listened to the arguments raging backwards and forwards across the table when we had our sort of bi-monthly meeting I've been listening to the same arguments for the last 10 years. I just thought, unless something dramatic happens here, I'll be listening to all of this in 10 years' time. So I decided that the best way to sort this out was to go around the individual owners and to buy them out. So I've been buying out the individual owners. That was quite tricky, because you can imagine that if they all got wind of what I was up to, then they would probably have sort of doubled or trebled the price, because they would have had a sort of a special seller situation. They'd have seen me as being a special buyer managed to do that and I managed to agree terms and buy out four of the other owners which means that now all 14 flats are now owned by only four of us and we all get on fairly well I don't think we're ever going to be sending each other Christmas cards but we get on well enough we have a common purpose we want to bring the flats up to scratch and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with mine I may just sell them onto owner occupiers at some point to be honest or possibly just get them brought up to scratch get brought up to a decent standard get some decent tenants in and then sell them on probably at a profit. So that's been quite a big project. So with that going on, with applying for the planning on the land, with the negotiating terms of my commercial conversion, it's been a busy 12 months. And of course, with doing the trainings at Progressive. 
But who knows what the future holds? I'm very excited about the whole thing, man. I can see that things are going to be changing in property quite dramatically. In many respects, we could look at the changes that are coming and think they might be quite negative. I can quite see that there's potentially going to be a change of government and that particular government, and I don't want to offend anybody, but let's just be real about this. Not everybody likes landlords or investors, and I suspect that we're going to become even less popular than we are, and the taxation system could well change, and then there's all the issues around Brexit. There's a lot of stuff going on at the moment, but I think if we hang on in there and if we are prepared to adapt, if we're prepared to work on our mindset so that we can see the opportunities and not the problems, then I think that there's a lot of great stuff which is going to be happening over the next few years and we'll all end up doing stuff which we never dreamt was possible. So there we are. That's a little bit more about me. I hope I haven't bored the pants off you. It does seem a little bit strange talking all about me, but you asked, who am I? What do I do? Why do I do it? Well, that's it, really. That's who I am. So I hope you enjoyed that. If you want to know more about me, then please come to my website, www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk. You'll find some resources there. You'll find my blog, for example. You'll find videos. You'll find some free resources, like some free reports. There's also some paid resources. If you want to get your money out, you don't have to. You can have the free resources. It's all there for you anyway. But come across to my site. Say hello, www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk. Anyway... Until we meet at Progressive down in sunny Peterborough, or until the next episode, here's to successful property investing. 